Ina Mystery, and you're listening to Deliberations on Diaspora, a podcast on global diaspora history. This podcast was created by the students of History 404, Themes in Diaspora History at Queen's University in Canada. This course addresses themes such as mobility, borders, citizenship, displaced peoples, race, and labor. Students were assigned topics and sources related to diaspora culture and identity and had to speak about them. I wanted to thank the Department of History at Queen's for their support and funding, as well as CFRC, the campus radio station. The music for this podcast was provided by Erez Zobari, and the song is entitled The Fig Tree. The green summer's gone, will you go on? Welcome to our Diaspora Histories podcast. I'm Norris Gasper. And I'm Sahana Sivanason. And today's podcast, we're going to be talking to you about the politicization of race in television. As the Black diaspora in Britain grew, the global movements of people increased after the Second World War. British society struggled to adapt to this rapidly changing demographic. This struggle was definitely reflected within British pop culture as the diaspora communities also wanted to assert their place in Britain, but this definitely proved to be an uphill battle. As we know, television is in particularly often a mirror of social and political issues and can serve as a medium to bring these topics into everyday life. And just like the shows within our modern day context, sitcoms of the 60s and 70s reflected their social context, engaging viewers with topics that were already being discussed around their dinner table. Today, we want to look specifically at the controversial British sitcom Love Thy Neighbor, which aired in the 1970s and really exemplified the racial tensions present in British society at the time. So let's just give you guys a little context about the time period in which the show aired. The racial demographic of Britain really changed in the late 40s, after the end of World War II and the beginning of the decolonization era. The arrival of the Empire of Windrush ship in 1948, which brought around 500 West Indians to the coast of Britain, marked a significant racial shift in post-war Britain. I agree. It definitely marked a shift towards a multicultural and multi-ethnic society. The arrival of these migrants also brought forth the hierarchies of citizenship. As though the West Indians who arrived did hold British citizenship, they were viewed as foreigners in the eyes of the British society because of their dark skin and overseas birth. But I wonder what the full effect of this race-based exclusion was on these new immigrants. Well, the obvious physical differences between the West Indians and the white Brits constructed divisions between the two groups and created sort of disillusionment as the immigrants' dreams of acceptance and equality in British society faded with the rise of British racism against the Windrush generation. So I think it's fair to say that the Windrush became a key moment in black British cultural memory that really asserted their place in British society. I definitely agree. It can be kind of seen as a turning point for diversity in British culture. The consequence of the sudden influx of immigrants was, of course, a rise in racial tension. A podcast hosted by the BBC Radio paints these racial tensions in 1970s Britain as the backdrop for the popular sitcom Love Thy Neighbor. It's also important to note that at the time of the show, though the black population in Britain had grown to about one and a half million, racial violence had also increased. Exactly. This era of beatings, slurs, and demonization of the black population became the platform for British sitcoms which highlighted race relations. I definitely think it's important to acknowledge this context because you can really see it reflected in Love Thy Neighbor. So, a little background on Love Thy Neighbor itself. It first aired in 1972, and the show follows the lives of Eddie and Joanne, a working-class couple, and Bill and Barbara, a West Indian couple who moves in next door to them. The character of Eddie is meant to reflect the racist overtones during this time, and he was routinely using racial slurs and derogatory language. Yes, a good example of this is in episode one when Eddie realizes that his new neighbors were black and immediately tries to convince his wife to move. Scenes like that were commonplace in the show, and the writers have since argued that they meant to show how ridiculous racists like Eddie were by making him the butt of the show's jokes. 
Of course, like many things in the entertainment industry, this didn't exactly translate to its audiences, who often identified with Eddie and were sympathetic to his ideas. It didn't help that the show's popularity gave it a platform to reach more people, and quotes like this one became commonplace. Warning, this clip contains derogatory and offensive language. He's gone too far this time. You've been having words with Mr. Baxter again? I have not. I consider Mr. Baxter to be a charming, understanding, cultured sort of person. Those weren't the adjectives you used a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago we didn't have Jungle Boy living next door. (laughs) No, what is it now? The superiority of white over black, Labour over Tory, or Manchester United over Chelsea? It's all right, you're joking. I have been accused of ogling Mrs. Sambo. (laughs) He's caught you, has he? What do you mean, caught me at it? I've got better things to do than to stare at his wife. Then why is it every time you see her, your eyes nearly fall out your head? Oh, don't exaggerate, John. It's him. He's a troublemaker. Come on, Eddie. It's true, love. He's stirring it up. We never had this trouble with Frank Musgrove. When Frank lived next door, he never accused me of ogling there, Nelly. I should hope not. She was 64. <laughs> well, don't try and defend him. Sambo must go. 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 Look, look. It's either us or them. Can't you see the black man's plan? No. He's probably got his wife to lie out there in that bikini just to get me at it. He's trying to force us out. What's that sound very hot out there? Look, he's serious, love. I know this lot. It's phase one. They'll get us out. Then another tribe of nignogs will move next door. <laughs> then they'll start old Baxter. One by one, they'll infiltrate. Till Maple Terrace is a suburb of Trinidad. That clip was from the third episode of season one, so already you can see the kinds of language the show utilized. We should note that BBC Radio interviewed several viewers of the show who were of African and West Indian descent, and they said at the time the black population were just happy to see black characters on a TV show who lived in a normal house, who had normal jobs, and weren't depicted, depicted as dumb or running through the jungle naked. Yes, and I think it's really interesting to see how the show was perceived differently in its contemporary context by different audiences. The claim that the show was meant to poke fun at the British was a common theme in other controversial TV shows at the time who used it to justify their controversial subject matter. The show also ran for eight seasons, and some of the episodes were more blatantly racist than others. However, it is clear that Eddie is supposed to look like the idiot, as Bill always gets the better of him. Yes, a good example of that is the season two episode entitled Voodoo, where Eddie, who is annoyed that Bill gets a football ticket and he doesn't, makes a voodoo doll of Bill after accusing him of using voodoo to win the tickets in the first place. Bill decides to have some fun with Eddie, pretending the doll is working, and and making Eddie do all kinds of ridiculous things, like dancing naked around a tree in the park to cure him after he feigned being ill because of the voodoo curse. I think what Eddie does in this in this episode is first stereotype the black population by insinuating that they all practice voodoo and then hypocritically using the same practice he condemned to gain advantage over Bill. The way it is presented is supposed to paint Eddie as ignorant and racist, but it is these types of episodes that resonated with the white working class of people at the time. It is really interesting to see what the actors themselves thought about their roles. Jack Smethurst, who portrayed Eddie when asked by the BBC on his opinion of the show, said that it was over 40 years ago and that those were different times. He also said that the show may actually have been good for racial inclusion as it brought to light much of the so-called covert racism that existed in British society. He continued to defend the show by pointing out that Eddie was always depicted as stupid and that Bill got the last laugh in most of the situations. I think this idea that if something was so long ago and we need to excuse its racism is a common thought process. 
Love Thy Neighbor was undoubtedly would undoubtedly face incredible backlash if it aired today, but the fact that it aired years ago when the te- the type of rhetoric was normalized means that it was com- can be commemorated as one of Britain's most popular sitcoms of the time. What is important as a modern person looking back on these types of episodes is to ask what were the social and political impacts of these racist thoughts in British society, and I think the result, contrary to the showrunner's intention, was to give people a type of working-class hero in Eddie. I definitely agree. Whether it was intentional or not, the representation of black people politicized the show. It's important to point out that Love Thy Neighbor was just one of the British sitcoms that tried to tackle race in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, one of the most infamous sitcoms of the time is the BBC show Till Death Do Us Part. Exactly, and while Love Thy Neighbor did highlight a lot of racist rhetoric, Till Death Do Us Part was far more intense. A Vice article which looked into the racist history of British sitcoms remarked that the show, which follows a working-class British family, normalized the family's patriarch, Alf Garnett, who regularly spouted racist commentary and exclaimed about the glory of the British Empire. The frightening effect of that show in particular was the large portion of its audience admitted that they found Alf's views reasonable and were consequently more likely to find black people inferior to white people. There are many other sitcoms like these. One of the more blatantly racist ones is Mind Your Language, a show about an English as a second language course. Its characters are two-dimensional stereotypes, including a sensual French au pair and the communist Chinese man, just to name a few. To add to that, I think it's important to point out that the black population was not the only minority to find themselves at the center of television's attempts to show racial diversity. It makes me wonder about the true motivations behind the TV shows were, and why they didn't shy away from such controversial subjects. That's an excellent question, and what I think is clear from these shows is that the attempt by British television to politicize racial integration and to comment on the growing diversity of British society did not always have their intended effect. No, in addition to that, many of the shows faced pressure to represent the growing black population of Britain, but didn't know how to accomplish that in a non-political fashion. Yes, this so-called satire defense that most of these controversial shows took really doesn't acknowledge the subjectivity of their audience. But what is interesting is that there was a definitive push for these shows to be political. An article that focused on race and the sitcom points out that the absence of black voices in the shows of the 70s led to resentment, but conversely, comedies aimed at black audiences were unsuccessful. There were some shows that were quite radical in their attempts at social commentary. An excellent example of this is the TV play Fable, which aired in 1965 as an episode of the BBC One show Wednesday Play. Fable is a fascinating example. The episode is set in totalitarian Britain, where the black population is in authority and the white population are the oppressed people. It was meant as a reversal of the situation in apartheid Africa and was supposed to show anti-racist commentary on oppression. However, instead of eliciting compassion from its white audiences, it only reaffirmed their opinion that black people should never be in power. This example is an excellent demonstration of how attempts at political commentary by television programs often backfired and ended up reinforcing the racist thoughts they were trying to combat. Yes, and what's particularly interesting about this example is that it leaned more towards the genre of political drama than comedy, and yet it still had the same sort of results with its audiences as the sitcoms we have been discussing. To further that thought, shows that tried to steer more towards comedy than politics, such as the 1980 show No Problem, were criticized by black activists who were angered by the narrow roles given to the characters. Do you think this implies that shows involving the black population are inherently political? That's a really interesting question, and to answer it, I think it's helpful to look at some modern examples. Of course, as Hollywood is now the dominant force in the entertainment industry, our modern sitcoms largely play in the context of America, 
but this doesn't mean they don't tackle similar issues. There are several sitcoms in particular that reflect the issues of race present in society today. They include the ABC show Blackish and the Netflix show Dear White People. Blackish follows an African-American family in their everyday life, but it has an ongoing political message each episode, tackling everything from the history of segregation to the election of Barack Obama. Dear White People is definitely more direct with its political focus. It doesn't hide behind any comedy central plot. The show follows the lives of black students at an American university who band together to fight against racism on their campus. However, before we go deeper into any political comedy shows, I think we should also mention that there was an attempt at an American remake of Love Thy Neighbor, which shouldn't be confused with Tyler Perry's Love Thy Neighbor that ran in 2013. This American remake was set in Los Angeles in 1970s and reversed the roles of the original show. In the remake, a black couple is horrified when an obnoxious working-class white couple, who recently won the lottery, buys a house next to them. The show clearly tried to be a politically correct version of the original, but ended up only running for one season. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. I think it's really interesting to see how America tried to reimagine the show, but their racially progressive version was not even a fraction as successful as the original British show. But what are the implications of that divide, then? Was it just the wrong time for the show in America, or was it just something that appealed to the viewers about the character of Eddie that made the British show so successful? Again, really interesting question, especially considering the popularity of modern shows we mentioned. Blackish has been nominated for several Emmys, and Dear White People, though controversial, has a strong following on Netflix. So perhaps the 70s was just the wrong time for a show that had such controversial subject matter. I think what modern shows like Blackish do well is that they don't shy away from controversial topics. They are upfront with their political messages. We're going to be playing you a short clip from the Blackish episode Lemons, which aired after the 2016 election of Donald Trump. Wait, no, 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 hold on. What, what, what's so funny, Dre? Yeah, you have had nothing to say about any of this all day. Why do you not care about what's happening to our country? What did you say to me? Hmm? You don't think I care about this country? I love this country, even though at times it doesn't love me back. For my whole life, my parents, my grandparents, me, for most black people, this system has never worked for us. But we still play ball, tried to do our best to live by the rules, even though we knew they would never work out in our favor. Strange fruit. Had to live in neighborhoods that you wouldn't drive through. Send our kids to schools with books so beat up you couldn't read them. Work jobs that you wouldn't even consider in your nightmares. And blood at the roots. Black people wake up every day believing that our lives are going to change even though everything around us says it's not. Truth be told, you ask most black people and they tell you that no matter who won this election, they didn't expect the hood to get better. Strange fruit. But they still voted because that's what you're supposed to do. You think I'm not sad that Hillary didn't win? That I'm not terrified about what Trump's about to do? I'm used to things not going my way. I'm sorry that you're not, and it's blowing your mind. So excuse me if I get a little offended because I didn't see all of this outrage when everything was happening to all of my people since we were stuffed on boats in chains. I love this country as much, if not more, than you do, and don't you ever forget that. This episode has garnered a lot of praise for its balancing of political commentary and comedy while remaining culturally relevant. 
From this clip, it is also evident that politics is ingrained in the show. This demonstrates that whether self-imposed or not, shows about the black population in both America and Britain have inherently political connotations. Of course, the question then becomes, is this politicization of race in these sitcoms the reason they appeal to so many people? Would they be as popular if they didn't acknowledge their social and political context of race relations? That's, again, a good question. I think it's important to look at the audience these sitcoms are targeting compared to who they're actually reaching. A study done by Nielsen, a company that looks into global data and analytics, revealed that the viewership for Blackish is mostly composed of non-African-American viewers, 79% to be exact, with only 20% of their viewership actually being African-American. I think those statistics show that sitcoms like Blackish acts like a gateway for Americans that do not identify as being Black to engage with issues facing racial and ethnic minorities at the dining room table, at least within the modern context. I think the comedic elements of these shows also allow for these conversations to be more accessible for those who are not of African American heritage. Even though, in the context of Dear White People, there was a massive backlash against the show as it spurred the hashtag to boycott Netflix, and there were online attacks on the creator of the show for promoting reverse racism through the controversial title and subject matter. I completely agree. I think the comedic element adds a certain level of accessibility to these tough discussions. The creator of Dear White People had said that he had two goals in the creation of the satirical comedy. One was to construct his characters in a way that made sure that people that may not look like the characters can still identify with them, and the other was to ensure that people who have endured racism and discrimination have their experiences addressed and their feelings validated. In this clip we're going to play for you, the main character, Sam, learns that her radio show, Dear White People, has been suspended after the white students on campus complained about her promoting reverse racism. Sam, I'm so glad you're here. I just, um, I, I, I need you to leave immediately. What are you talking about? What's she doing here? Listen, I'm just filling your time slot with Dear Abigail until this whole blackface controversy blows over. Dear Abigail? I, I'm getting complaints from all over. I've had trolls since day one. Okay. People just don't get how you can have a show called Dear White People and then complain about a party called Dear Black People. Well, if I hear reverse racism one more time. Reverse racism? Really? I think the need for representation and validation of ethnic minorities and their experiences really drives the sense of obligation to politicize these sitcom narratives, as the stories and experiences they depict rarely make it to the forefront of mainstream media. The creator, Dear White People, was discussing the idea of burden of identity, which basically means people who identify with the minority group will never be allowed the privilege of denying their identity and the community associated with that identity. So how can we, as consumers of media and members of such a multicultural society in Canada, ease this burden of identity while addressing the political questions these shows engage with? I think that's something important for us to reflect upon. Media has been become such a thing that we, as a mis- society mindlessly consume without understanding the repercussions of our consumption. The tokenism and exaggerated ways in which ethnic minorities are often portrayed with characters such as Apu from Simpsons to meet the burden of representation must be questioned so that ethnic minorities can regain agency within pop culture and media. Stereotypical representations definitely only further harm how minorities are perceived and treated within society. The politics of identity within ethnic communities and diasporas, especially that of diaspora communities in America and Britain, continue to battle against these stereotypical images, further adding on to their burden of identity. I think it's easy to forget the agency and power we as consumers hold. So with that, I leave you with a reminder to be mindful of your media consumption and the implications it may have on minorities, and most importantly, to love thy neighbor. Thank you so much for joining us, and be sure to check out the rest of the Diaspora Histories podcasts.
This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.